I would be remiss on Memorial Day if I didn't take time out not only to remember veterans and service members, but also someone important in autism research that passed away this week. Many of you have heard of Isabel Rappin. If you live in the New York area and either have a child who's now an adult with autism or are an adult with autism, it's possible that she helped you in some way. Dr. Rappin retired in 2012, but worked for over 50 years at Albert Einstein University and Bellevue Hospital as a neurologist helping people and families with neurodevelopmental disorders, including autism. I won't claim to have been close to Dr. Rappin. I only met her a few times when I worked at the National Alliance for Autism Research, and in many ways, she was the ideal reviewer. Her reviews were always well thought out, concise, to the point, and always came back to how the science was going to advance the understanding of autism or help the individuals she was seeing in her active practice. In addition to her research and her time in clinic, she was a well-loved teacher who said, and now I'm quoting from her profile that was written upon her retirement, quote, I discovered as a teen that I loved teaching. When I learn something new that excites me, I want to share it with others and get them excited too, unquote. In addition to teaching in the classroom, she was a well-respected mentor who trained many of the leading autism clinicians and researchers today who are making important discoveries and advances in autism. She received many well-deserved awards, which I won't name, wrote books that have been referenced probably millions of times, both in publications and in clinical practice. But I want to make sure everyone knows that while she may have seemed a little prickly, it was the steadfast resolution that autism was seated in the brain and that abnormal wiring and pathology was the root of symptoms that revolutionized the field from what was considered at the time a disorder because moms didn't love their children enough. She was an early advocate of studying the brains of people with autism and understanding the genetics of autism and developmental disorders. And also, I want to note that as one of the very few women neurologists, she had to fight and hustle harder than anyone else. In 2001, she wrote a short autobiography for a journal, and she noted that she was one of a dozen women in a class of 100 in her medical school in Switzerland. She served as an amazing role model, not only to her students, but to all women scientists. I want to share some advice she gave young students in that same autobiography. Quote, the message I would give a young colleague is that child neurology is a wonderfully rewarding field, intellectually and personally, because of the families you will meet. In order to have it all, that is, be married, have children, restore and furnish an antique house, which I guess she did, work in the garden, enjoy a lot of what life offers, and have a great job, you need a supportive and generous mate, adequate babysitting and house help, flexibility, good humor, and a nose for the unusual. Consider every patient a potential source of new knowledge. Describe what you see, pursue your interests vigorously, and learn to cut corners and prioritize. Find a good mentor, enjoy what you do, and be lucky. Dr. Rappin was 89 years old when she died this week. She treated many individuals who both landed in the hospital and those who were able to be treated and managed in the home. Even though children with autism are more likely to require psychiatric hospitalization compared to children with other neurodevelopmental disorders or psychiatric problems, not all children with autism are equally likely to be treated on an inpatient basis. Obviously, the costs are higher with inpatient care, and I'm not so sure any person or family member with autism wants to go into the hospital. So a group of researchers this week examined factors which increase risk for being put in the hospital. They compared those who have an autism diagnosis and received inpatient care 
with those who had not received any inpatient care using two different cohorts. They found that, as you would expect, things like lower IQ and lower verbal ability and higher autism severity increased risk of being put in the hospital at some time. People put in the hospital also had a higher number of comorbid psychiatric disorders, especially mood disorders. Surprisingly, though, repetitive and restrictive behaviors were not associated with being hospitalized. I was surprised at this because presence of restricted and repetitive behaviors have been shown to be associated with more maladaptive behaviors. But methodologies between the two studies may have accounted for this difference. When the researchers controlled for other variables, a particular trait called higher social affect severity increased the risk of hospitalization. And also, those hospitalized were more likely to come from a single parent household and have sleep disturbances. The single parent household finding is especially important because these families are already carrying a high burden, with one parent bearing most of the responsibility. The authors point out that maladaptive behaviors increase the likelihood of hospitalization when their severity exceeds the capacity of the family to cope, and this will be different for individual families. They note that the relationship between family status and hospitalization may underscore the need to ensure that the family has adequate resources to cope with significant negative behaviors. Presence of psychiatric, including mood disorders, problems sleeping, IQ, and social affect are all things that should be assessed and targeted and at least try to make sure that these people don't land in the hospital, especially because of a crisis situation. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed your Memorial Day weekend.